on the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the Israelites, Joshua spoke to the Lord, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in mid-heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded a human voice, for the Lord fought for Israel. Almost a year ago, I did an episode called Josh versus the Sun, based on that story from Joshua chapter 10. A couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to sit down and talk over that bizarre, amazing, and sometimes humorous biblical story with a couple of my podcasting buddies, Gary Stevens from the History in the Bible podcast and Stephen Guerra from the History of the Papacy podcast. I think that my listeners might enjoy listening in on our conversation. So, this extra episode is not exactly the retelling of a Bible story. It is a discussion about my retelling. This is Retelling the Bible. Extra Discussion The Day the Sun Stood Still Welcome to a brand new collaboration between Scott, Gary, and Steve. I am Steve Guerra, and I host the History of the Papacy podcast, and we are joined by Scott McAndalist, who is the host and producer of Retelling the Bible podcast, and Gary Stevens, the host of History in the Bible podcast. And the three of us are going to come together to talk about a subject we all love, the Bible. Introduce yourself, Scott. I am uh, Scott McAndalist. I have a podcast called Retelling the Bible. But even before I started my own podcast, I was uh, definitely a fan and en enjoyed uh, History in the Bible podcast with Gary Stevens and uh, always enjoyed his historical take on, you know, what was behind the Bible and the Bible stories. But I really enjoyed a number of the episodes that, that these two guys have done. Uh, in terms of talking through the minor prophets and and some other uh, sections of the Bible, I've always enjoyed the discussions. You know, occasionally I would listen and I would have a slightly different opinion or a different take on things, but nothing necessarily prompted me to reach out and tell them that I was disagreeing or anything like that. I just really enjoyed their discussion, their dis their the way they just enjoyed these passages. But when they started a little bit more recently talking about some of their favorite stories in the Bible, that's when I got really, you know, really engaged because I just love the stories of the Bible. And I have taken in my podcast, 
just trying to look at some of the more interesting or curious or different or often neglected stories of the Bible and just telling them, spinning them into a narrative and in doing that, trying to understand maybe where the author was coming from when when the story was written, what kind of cultural, what kind of history was behind it, and just trying to do that by telling the story. And so when they started talking about the stories of the Bible and the fun and interesting stories and maybe the ones that people don't talk about enough, I just had to reach out. And so I think I reached out to Stephen and I don't remember who I reached out to first and said, you know, I got a bunch of other stories that you guys should talk about. And then we started talking and here we are trying to do a little bit of a three-way talk about talking about stories of the Bible. Also, an American, a Canadian, an Australian, just getting together and talking about some of our favorite stories. And so that's what we're trying to do. In this collaboration, which will hopefully be a series of many, we are going to look at a specific clip from Scott's podcast where he retells a portion of a Bible story in a narrative format. In this podcast collaboration we're doing, we'll play a little clip of Scott's podcast, and then we'll get to talk about it from three different perspectives. Scott, why don't you set up the clip we are featuring today? The story we are looking at today is the story of Joshua and the day the sun stood still in the sky. So this is the story from Joshua chapter 10, verses 1 to 21 where there's this great big battle and Joshua fights against the Amorites. And I believe it's seven different kings who have come together and five different kings. There he is telling me. And Joshua wins. But more than that, uh, in order to kill all of his enemies, Joshua calls on God, apparently, to stop the sun in the sky so that they have more time to kill more enemies. So this clip is just at the beginning, near the beginning of the battle. So this is when the Israelites have come to an incredible forced march, which I'm sure we'll talk about afterwards, and they are falling upon their enemies, and the battle is just beginning. So this is all before the sun stands still, but it really sets the, the tone for the whole story, I think, really well. Before we get into the clip, I just want to add just a couple of things, just an explanation. I use music in my podcast to tell my stories. I wanted to say that the, the music in that clip is called Stormfront by Kevin MacLeod, and I got it from the, the Creative Commons. I need to acknowledge that. I also got a few sound, plaques, uh, sound effects from zapsplat.com. And now we are going to play the clip from Scott's podcast. Enjoy, and we will see you on the other side. It was plain that a massive storm would soon descend upon the enemy camp. He smiled grimly at Joshua. How can the sun and the moon fight for them when they can't even see them through the cloud cover? It only took minutes for Joshua to persuade his exhausted troops to attack the enemy. He did it by convincing them that they wouldn't really need to fight anyways, that their God would fight for them. 
They think that their gods, Yarich and Shamash, will save them. But they are no match for the power of our god. I mean, look at those clouds. Those are the clouds of Yahweh, the rider on the storm. And they are going to blot out the sun and the moon. Do you hear that thunder? That is Yahweh's voice. Your victory is certain. And as the warriors swept over the crest of the hill to descend on the army of the five kings, Joshua sang a hymn to his gods. Sing to El, O kingdoms of the earth. Sing praises to Yahweh, O rider in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Listen, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to El, whose majesty is over Israel, and whose power is in the skies. El bursts forth from your sanctuary, El of Israel, who gives power and strength to his people. When the armies of the five kings looked up to see the Israelites descending upon them, their enemy forces barely even registered. They were looking instead over the heads of the Israelite warriors, for there was the most terrifying sky that they had ever seen. The clouds had taken on a strange hue. They were not merely gray but black, and with a strange, greenish tinge. The sight stirred an ancestral fear deep down inside them, and as they saw the clouds blot out the light of the sun on one side of the horizon, and as they approached the moon near the other, they were also left with a deep theological question. Was it possible that the storm god of the Israelites was more powerful than their gods. Now, Scott, that clip doesn't seem to talk about the moon and the sun stopping in the sky. No, it sets up the battle. And it's actually, uh, uh, but I think, obviously, in my episode, I get to the part where the sun stands still. But in actually, to understand what really goes in the story, I think that's where you need to dwell on what's really going on in this battle. There's so many questions in this story. That episode sort of brings together a number of the different questions that come up. If you actually look at this story and try to take it seriously as the story that's being told, because there are enormous problems, obviously, with this story, right? Number one, uh, the whole idea, obviously, about the sun stopping in the sky. For ancient Israelites, who imagined the universe as standing, as, as being stationary, as not moving, and the sun, moon, and stars as moving around the earth, it was pretty easy for them to imagine that God might stop the sun from moving in the sky. Uh, it didn't seem like a big deal to them. But of course, we live in a completely different world that has a, a completely understanding, different understanding of the universe. We know that the earth moves 
And the very idea that the sun stopping in the sky doesn't make any sense because we understand According to laws of physics, if the earth were to suddenly stop spinning, we'd all go flying off. How on earth is this possible? Well, that's one of the big problems with this story. And as I dug into it, I think I understand what is actually going on in the story. And I tried to portray it in the way I told the story. And some of the elements of that are in the clip. And obviously, more of it is in the whole story. There's also a number of geographical issues, problems with the story. One of the amazing things that happens in the story, as it's told in the book of Joshua, is that the entire army of Joshua makes a forced march. So they go all the way from Gilgal to Gibeon, we're told, before this battle. They do it in one night. And the thing is this the distance from Gilgal to Gibeon is 26 kilometers, 13 miles, but chances are they would have had, there, there would have been no direct route. It's through the hills, so they would have had to go the long way, probably a 40-kilometer journey through the hills, mostly uphill. So we're actually talking about a distance roughly equivalent to a marathon, 26 miles, whatever that is, the distance from marathon to Athens in, in Greece. In one night. They're basically doing a cross-country trek. Yeah. Because there would have been no roads. No roads, yes. And this is not just one person making this run. This is an entire Iron Age or Bronze Age army. They may be traveled at 16 kilometers a day uh, at the time. Alexander the Great, he was able to make his army, you know, centuries later, was able to make his armies travel maybe 20 kilometers a day. And yet here we have this army doing twice that in one night. And then fighting people, defeating them, and chasing them another 50 kilometers the next day. So the distances are absolutely insane and crazy. And part of what I was doing with the, with the way I told the stories, I had a lot of fun with that. I imagined them arriving after this, doing this impossible marathon, totally out of breath and deciding to go and start the, start the battle. So those are the kinds of elements that I tried to tackle. There are huge problems, I think, with the story, but as I dug into it, I came to understand it, and I tried to reflect what I think is really going on in this story. But maybe before we dig into some of my ideas, I'd like to get some of your reactions to the story and maybe my approach to it. I was wondering, so there's clearly the physical problems of it, that marches like that are absolutely unheard of. I was uh, looking up a couple of other marches. You look at uh, King Harold's march from northern England to southern England. I mean, that was a pretty miraculous march. I think there was one in the U.S. Civil War where in two days, I think it was Robert E. Lee's army covered some absolutely astonishing amount of land but it and they still fought after that and i believe they won and there's a i didn't look up that detailed but there are examples of but nothing to that matter and then like you said physically if the earth were to stop we'd all go spinning off into space as a as a story though are there still problems in there as a theological story rereading the story the whole story goes for 27 verses 
the actual events of the sun and moon standing still are almost throwaways. I, that hadn't occurred to me before. So really the story starts off with, okay, Joshua suddenly comes upon his enemies and verse 10, and the Lord threw them into a panic. As they fled before Israel, the Lord threw down huge stones from heaven on them. So that's the, that's the big event that happens. It then goes on. On the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the Israelites, Joshua spoke to the Lord and he said in the sight of Israel, sun, stand still at Givon and moon in the valley of Aon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Hayashah, which means the upright? But the story of the sun and the moon, which most people take to be the central thing of this 27 verses, it's, it's like it's been a little insert whacked in there. And it, it's gone almost before it started, this little sub-story. Responding to what Gary said, uh, yes, uh, absolutely. The, the whole thing about the sun and the moon standing still is kind of an afterthought. When I first did this story, when I did first published this story, and I and I shared it in different forums where, you know, there are people who read the Bible very literally. I raised this issue about the earth standing still and us all, all off flying off into space. And yeah, it made perfect sense for the ancient people that the sun could just stop in the sky because that fit their understanding of the universe. But for us, we know that the universe works differently. So are we really going to suggest that God had to suspend all the laws, all the laws of physics to do this thing? So we demand much more from God to believe that this happened than the ancient people did. But then you get into the whole question of why, because exactly what Gary said is exactly right. At this point, they've already won the battle. They've defeated them. Their enemy is all the, on the run. And basically, the reason why, apparently, Joshua tells the son to stand still is he just wants to have more time so he can kill more of them. That's the only reason. Then you start defending the idea, well, okay, God, sure, God can do suing God if God, is, God can do anything. Therefore, God decided to suspend all the laws of physics just so Joshua could kill a few more baddies, basically to carry out genocide or a part of an overall campaign of genocide. So you get into a really big ethical discussion about what kind of God is this who decides to do something so extraordinary just so we can kill a few more Amorites. It just doesn't make any sense for me that you could read it that way. We have to find another way to read it. Although you must admit, the idea of, thank goodness, we, we have more time to kill more of the baddies, fits in with the general tenor of the book, which is about the annihilation of the Canaanites. Apparently, the, the term, which is often used, because you'll see, you'll see Joshua, and he took this town and it was devoted to destruction. The Hebrew word is kerem. The notion of devoting something to destruction that is totally annihilating a village or a town is, was a fairly standard Middle Eastern concept. We've actually found inscriptions saying, King so-and-so, ha, we wiped them out, not all one survived. And apparently the notion is this is a sacrifice to God. You must not keep 
any of these people as slaves or any of their goods or anything. This is all God's. And indeed, there is a story in the book of Joshua where one of his sub-commanders or something actually keeps some of the goodies he gets from a town which is devoted to destruction. And boy, does God get upset. I did, I did an episode on that one too. It's a fascinating story, yes. Apparently too that there's some interpretation that these towns were actually demonic and so not destroying them would have been seen as an affront to God as well. If you had kept some of this demonic gold or demonic plunder or taken demonic slaves, then again, you're, uh, you're going against God's commandment. What sort of has happened is that certain Christian groups trying to defend this idea that the conquest of Canaan and the genocide and all of these things was good have tended to exaggerate the evil of the Canaanites to sort of justify it and make it, these were obviously the worst people in the history of the world. And perhaps at some point we need to throw in here that there's actually no evidence of the conquest. Well, yeah. That's, yeah. We, we need to make this point that any so, the kind of grand invasion, genocide, slaughter that is described in the book of Joshua would absolutely leave traces in the, the archaeological record, and there isn't it. In the 1960s and 1970s, I think, archaeologists pretty well established that all the cities which are claimed in Joshua to have been destroyed by him had ceased to exist a good 200 years or so beforehand. The Canaanite cities were wiped out during the, Great, uh, during the Bronze Age collapse. So when Joshua came along, they were already gone. It would be interesting to know if when they're writing this is that they see mass destruction. I mean, 200-year-old destruction isn't that very old. Seeing that and trying to explain it somehow and then backdating a story that fits that evidence that they have in front of them of the Bronze Age collapse. Yeah, there's probably a bit of that. We know that some of these ruins would have been well known to the people in the land. I the town of AII uh, was well known. It was a well-known ruin up until modern times, and Jericho would have been another one. It wasn't uninhabited, but it was obviously an ancient city, right? It would certainly have made for a great nationalist myth, wouldn't it? There you are, a couple of generations after Joshua, the Hebrews, they're showing some friends from around the place around. Ah, see that ruin? We did that. Big city, huge, enormous. <laughs> we are conquerors. We we took care of that, mate. And then that establishes a, a claim to the land as well. Can I maybe try and explain how I've come to see this story and where, it, where I see it coming from? Excellent idea. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as much as I love the Bible and I love the story, I want to take the Bible seriously, I can't believe for all of the reasons we've talked about, that God God stopped the sun in the sky just so Joshua could kill more baddies. So what's actually going on here? And I came back to the little poem that Joshua says. So when Joshua says, sun stands still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Aijalon, and then it says, and the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. In the Bible I'm reading here, it's 
laid out as a poem. And I think that is significant because it is a perfect example of a kind of poetry that is known and recognized in, in the Bible, and it's battle poetry. Let me give you a couple of other examples. This is in Habakkuk 3, 10 and 11. The mountains saw you and writhed. A torrent of water swept by. The deep gave forth its voice. The sun raised high its hands. The moon stood still in its exalted place. So that's a prophecy of Habakkuk. Now, people read that, and they don't think that Habakkuk is saying the sun's stopping in the sky. He's being poetic about talking about the enemies of Israel. Or take this passage from the, the Song of Deborah in the Book of Judges. The stars fought from heaven. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The torrents, uh, Kishon, swept them away. The onrushing torrent, the torrent Kishon. So it wasn't uncommon in battle poetry or songs about wars and battles to talk about what was happening on the ground with the people fighting on the ground also happening in the heavens. It was a poetic way of talking about the story. So that's what Joshua is doing. He is talking about the heavenly aspects of the battle that's happening on earth. And in particular, when you realize that he's talking to the sun and he's talking to the moon, that the sun and the moon were gods. And you could also translate that instead of sun standstill, you would say Yarich standstill. And instead of moon, you would say Shamash, because those were names of gods. So what was happening in, obviously, I don't think Joshua himself said this, but some general or some poet wrote this about some battle at some time, and it was about Yahweh, the God of Israel, the storm God, the rider on the clouds. Uh, I used that part of the poem from the Psalms about Yahweh, the rider in the clouds, fighting against the gods of their enemy. Their enemies worship the sun and the moon. Basically, what's going on is we're winning. Our God, Yahweh, the cloud God, the rider in the storm, is winning. The sun and the moon, they're covered by the clouds. They're not helping our enemies. It's a bit of battle poetry that somebody obviously later took the poem and turned it into a story and said, and so the sun stood still and the moon stopped. That's my favorite theory, anyways, about what happened here. Somebody took a poem and turned it into a literal story in a description of a battle. That's an excellent theory. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And it, uh, the Bible in particular is so full, filled with parallels. And you can see that that idea that there's a showdown with the gods going on that parallels the showdown with the battle that's going on earth i mean that fits in very well with this with the general storytelling that we see in i believe for somewhere along the line in the original context in which that poem was written it was not imagining the sun's stopping in the sky but somebody came along later and interpreted it that way and i guess you might say in my retelling i interpreted it back to the beginning and then I decided with my own little dramatic twist, because this, this poem is apparently, it says, recorded in the book of Jasher, 
I decided to put Jasher in the middle of the battle, writing down the poem. Just on Jasher, because I wanted to bring up this technical point. Passage says, is this not written in the book of Hayashah, Jasher in English? And Hayashah means the upright. Now, I checked two translations by Jewish scholars. One took it as the name Jasher, as most people do, and how the King James Bible originally did. The other translation didn't interpret it as a proper name, but as literally the upright. So is this not written in the book of the upright? And apparently the rabbis tended to go with that one, and they said, okay, there's no such person as Hayashah. Uh, about Jasher, uh, the book of Jasher, or is mentioned one other place in the Old Testament. It is book, it mentioned in the book of Samuel, where it says that David wrote a lament or a poem of praise for John Jonathan after he died. And it says specifically that it was taught to the young warriors. This song was taught, which I sort of took as the idea that this book of Jasher was maybe a collection of war poetry that was used in some sense to teach young warriors. We really do keep getting back to the, the storytelling element. I think really truly appreciate these stories. You've got to strip away looking at them at the literal value. Because if the literal value, they're just, so many of them are just absurd. But when you start digging down and looking at them as stories that people are telling for a specific reason, they become much more interesting. Yeah, this is what I find. Just this is why I do what I do. I always find that I get new insights. And that's such a classic genre of battle songs that are completely exaggerated. That you can likely look at any culture around the world and their battle songs and poetry are just so over the top. The French national anthem is completely over the top, isn't it? We shall sow our fuels with the blood of our enemies. I think it sounds a lot better if it's not translated. I just picked up a book by Israeli archaeologist Yonatan Adler, and he wrote a book about how the Torah was edited by the Maccabees and how Judaism in Second Temple Judaism of the first and second centuries BCE was so edited to fit the new rising mythos of the Maccabees. I wonder if Joshua is somehow involved in there. I haven't gotten that far into the book. The Maccabees were pretty almost vicious conquerors. That's for, that's for certain. When the first Maccabean leader established sovereignty over his tiny, it was tiny, tiny, tiny little area over Jerusalem. And then he and his successors conquered everything up to uh, basically to, to recreate the old kingdom of Israel and Judah. They were very warlike. I mean, they almost annihilated the Samaritans entirely. They destroyed their temple at Mount Gerizim. The Joshua myth would fit perfectly yeah. with what the Maccabeans were doing. I, I, can see, I can see that, yes. This idea of creating this huge unified kingdom was really strong. Since we're on the topic of Joshua, does anybody else have something they would like to mention about Joshua or uh, maybe to add a, a little, add a little more context? I'd like to take that up. In the book of Joshua, the relationship between God and his people is depicted as absolutely perfect. 
even under Moses, the people are always kvetching. Why did we leave Egypt? But under Joshua, no. The people do exactly what God wants, and God is completely satisfied. And this is the only time in the entire history of the Israelites where that occurs. Now, one of the weird things about Joshua the man is that outside of his own book, he's hardly ever mentioned in the rest of the Old Testament. And when he is mentioned, it's not as the great conqueror, it's as a sort of a mini Moses. The conquering bit is really downplayed to the point of non-existence. And he isn't mentioned that often. He, he doesn't appear in any psalm. In the New Testament, I could only find two references. But you do know, of course, that the, the main character of the New Testament was named after him. It's true. That is true. But the New Testament never draws a comparison between the two. No one ever says, hey, Jesus, just like your namesake, conquering people. Jesus was one of the most popular names. I read somewhere there was only about six names, uh, first names that were used during that time period. There was a few other Joshua's in the Old Testament, too. Yeah, that's true. So it's just a popular name. And there's a lot, also a lot of weird names, most of which you can find in Chronicles. I'm putting out in a few days, my, my next episode is, is about She-Ra from the Book of Chronicles. She-Ra? She-Ra. Yes, she's my new hero, the builder of two cities. She's amazing. But she only gets two verses, two verses in the whole Bible. So I made a whole story about it. I think when you introduce that show, you should mention that you're not talking about the female superheroine. Oh, no, I'm, 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 I'm definitely talking about the female superheroine. That's going to be the whole point of the episode. That's going to be the whole point. Well, not the whole point. You certainly have an eye for picking out obscure little stories. That's for certain. Definitely look for more of these episodes in the future. Uh, I know I am in really enjoying talking about these and really getting to see those little bits that Scott is pulling out and stretching out into full narrative. I know I'm very much enjoying them, and I'm enjoying talking about the the history, the background, the the literature analysis, and hearing what Gary and Scott have to say about these really fun and interesting passages. Well, thank you. I have definitely enjoyed talking with you folks, too. Yes, this is fun. Toodles. That is it for this special episode. We will all be posting more similar discussions in the future, when we get a chance to have them. So please subscribe, so you can get the next one. Theme music for the podcast is Ah Da, and the music in the clip was Stormfront. The music is by Kevin McLeod. The music is licensed under the Creative Commons and can be found at filmmusic.io. Sound effects from zapsplat.com. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible and on the Facebook page Retelling the Bible. See the show notes at retellingthebible.wordpress.com for links to my discussion partners. Thanks again to my awesome Patreon supporters who back this podcast. If you'd like to join them or discover the benefits they receive, go to patreon.com slash 
Retelling the Bible. This is Retelling the Bible, and I am your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.